guys, we are back with our teaching in the book of Genesis. Now, the last time we were here in chapter 21, we basically looked at the lapse of faith, or that is the lapse of Abraham's faith. There were basically two issues that we looked at. It was the expelling of Ishmael, that is the firstborn son, physical son of Abraham, Ishmael, was rejected because of his uh, there was a play on the names, if you can recall, the name Isaac means laughter. And actually what Ishmael was doing was persecuting. It was the opposite of laughing along with Sarah. So, but the point is, so we saw Ishmael, Abraham's son, being rejected. And then after the rejection of Ishmael, and that played an important role in the mind and heart of psyche of Abraham. And the, th and the reason that I bring that particular point out is because don't think that it was a light thing for Abraham to do, because the first thing that the scriptures told us in that setting was it truly upset Abraham that Sarah would come to him and ask him to put his son as well as Hagar, but put his son out and it truly displeased Abraham. And so the Lord had to intervene in the situation and say to Abraham that it was the right thing to do. So we saw that particular issue. All right. And then it continued to move. And when Abraham had dealings with Abimelech, who would be the king of Gerar, and in that instance, we saw a lapse of faith, a lapse of faith of Abraham, and Abraham, which basically showed that Abraham's uh, faith was not to the point mature as what God had desired for his faith to actually be. So, but the point is, it was a lapse of in Abraham's faith. It was not a time in which Abraham shone brightly for the Lord, but it was a time in which it was an indication that Abraham, as we would simply say it today, his faith was not all that it should be at that particular point. But nevertheless, when we bring those two things together, and it's a beautiful way that the scriptures come together, that is the expelling of his elder son Ishmael, that was hurtful to Abraham and also the idea of a lapse in his faith. When we bring those two concepts together, we see even a more even wonderful picture in the very next chapter. What we will be, what we will be discussing today in chapter 22, it makes the picture even better in chapter 22 as we look at the greatest test of Abraham's faith of all and Abraham passed this test with flying colors. Okay. So without any further ado, as we would say, we're going to go now to Genesis chapter 22 and we're going to look at Abraham's test in his offering or God's God's testing Abraham to offer up his son, Isaac. Okay. So let us begin chapter 22 verse one. Now it came about after these things, that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, take now your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. So now we open up. There's been some considerable time. Abraham has been living 
uh, in the land. Remember, the last time we saw him was in the land of Gerah, the king of Gerah, of Abimelech, in the regions of Beersheba. All right. And now God begins to speak to Abraham at this particular time. Now, whether or not this was a physical manifestation or not, we do not know. Basically, we see the Baf Kol or the daughter of a voice, as the rabbi said. There is the spoken voice of the Lord in revelation to Abraham. And it says clearly that what is beginning to happen these few years that have passed now, because as we're going to see, Isaac has, is no longer a small boy. Remember, Isaac was winged, as we saw in chapter 21. Isaac is no longer a small little boy anymore, but Isaac is pretty much a young man, most likely a teenager at this time. OK, but nevertheless, so some years have passed and God now gives his ultimate verse number one test of Abraham. And so he calls Abraham and simply you see Hineni. Abraham responds, behold, here am I. And so he says to his direction to Abraham to take his son. And now notice how God speaks of Isaac, your only son. It doesn't mean the only son that Abraham has ever had, but as it does stand at the moment, remember Ishmael has been rejected and cast away. He, he and his mother both were expelled. That's the previous chapter, right? So with that respect, Isaac is now the only son, but not only that, there is also a theological uh, sense of the word only son in the sense of his uniqueness. That is the uniqueness of Isaac because Isaac is the son of the promise. Okay. So he says to him and, and just look at how the descriptors that God gives concerning Isaac and let your mind go back to what I was saying to you about Abraham's previous experience that he had when he had to put Ishmael out. Ishmael, his oldest son and also the son that he loved. He is now left with the last son, Isaac, that's his last son. All right. And now notice what God says to him. So, but let's look at the descriptors first. That is, he is his son, his only son and the son who Abraham loves. And with this, it lets us know God knows the heart of every man. He knows Abraham's heart, that he loved this particular son dearly. And you can understand even more so why he would have this love and attachment to, to Isaac. Not only is he the son of promise, but he's the only son that he has left. Okay. And then he tells him to go to the land of Moriah. Now, the thing that's interesting about the land of Moriah, that mountainous area or that mountainous region in Moriah, is it? Second Chronicles lets us know that it is the same place that Solomon, that, let, let me put it this way. It is this same place that David offers up a sacrifice unto the Lord that Solomon chooses, of course, of course, <laughs> by the word of God, that Solomon chooses a place to place the temple mound. Or in other words, it is this place, the mountain of Moriah, that the future temple of Jerusalem will be later placed. Now, what you guys have to see, 
This is not a mistake in the mind of God. The place in Jerusalem, the Temple Mount. Remember, it's the Temple Mount that all of the future sacrifices for the nation of Israel is to be made. The sacrifices of their sheep and their goat and where they would play a place of worship for God, where God himself has commanded that the sons of Israel should come and worship to him at that particular place. It's not an accident that this event is taking place in Moriah because we know that it is in that very same place. And I'm, I'm being a little premature, but I think it's necessary. It is in the same place in Mount Moriah, the Temple Mount, Outside, this will be in Jerusalem. This will be the place of Jerusalem where Jesus himself will be crucified. So the whole issue is, notice, where God is commanding Abraham to offer up his son as a burnt offering. You got it? This is the same thing that God himself will do in the same place. The place will later on become Jerusalem at the Temple Mount outside the city of Jerusalem that Jesus himself will give up his life voluntarily, surrender his life. God will sacrifice Jesus. Remember what John the Baptist said when he saw Jesus? Behold the lamb. The lamb is the sacrificial animal. Behold the lamb of whom? of God. Jesus is God's sacrifice. The very thing that God is commanding Abraham to do, God himself will do thousands of years later. Okay. But nevertheless, at this very same place, but nevertheless, that's the test of Abraham. And it is a magnificent test of faith. And now here's something else that you have to see. Faith and works are inseparable. There is no such concept of simply believing God and not acting like you do. That's the whole idea of Hebrews chapter 11, that faith demands action, or that's what James is actually teaching. Remember when James said, faith apart from works is dead. So true faith always involves, or should I say it this way, is evidenced by works. Or in other words, we know that you have faith by what you do. What you do determines what you believe. Because why? What you did is simply a reflection of what you were believing. And you're going to see that come when God gives a praise to Abraham when he says, now I know that you believe. But nevertheless, now that's really premature, but let's just go back into the text and see what's going on. So we have now the testing of Abraham. It is a test of monumental comparison into his lapse of faith at the same time. Recall what I said to you guys earlier about chapter 21, where there was a lapse in Abraham or failure in his faith. We go from failure in his faith to the greatest example of faith possible that ever has been depicted of a human being in all of scripture right here. But nevertheless, so he tells him, slowing it down, 
Go to the to regionist ear of Moriah. Now you know where Moriah is and where and what it will become and to offer him up as a burnt offering and to a particular place that God would tell him. OK, verse three. What would Abraham do with such a request from God? Would he toil? Would he struggle? Because the last time that we saw him, that we see Abraham was not doing well. But what has happened in the few years, but not just the few years since chapter 21, but the few years. This is what the Bible is trying to teach from the few years of chapter 12. From the time that God had called Abraham when he was 75 years old, Abraham had, and up until the time of God's promise fulfillment, when Isaac was born 25 years later, Abraham was what? A hundred years old at that time. And even now we've had some significant years have passed. The point is God has been walking with teaching, instructing Abraham through all the things that Abraham has been going through in his life. Abraham has learned to grow in his trust with God, or should I say towards God? So now the question is, is now, so, so, so let me bring it all together. Now God gives him his greatest test and tells him to literally do a human sacrifice, which of course, this is just a test in the mind of God. And we know that later on in the law of Moses, such human sacrifices would be absolutely forbidden and repugnant to God. But nevertheless, it's a test. It's a test of his faith or God is saying to Abraham, do you believe me? Do you trust in me? See what you got to remember is this. God made a promise to Abraham concerning Isaac. Remember, he said this, that you would have a seed and from that seed, you would have a multitude, many people, as many people as the stars of the sky. Isaac has never even had his first child. So therefore, the promise of the seed you can, is not in jeopardy. But now God is making Abraham not understand. See, you see. He has to have faith and believe and trust God, even when he does not understand exactly what's going to be, how it's going to work out. That is the nature of genuine faith. When you can simply believe God, even when you don't understand everything, faith implies obedience. You know what, Lord, you said this way. I don't understand everything. and I don't know how everything is going to work out, but you know what? I trust you. That is one thing that I do. I do believe and I trust in you. And so you know what I'm going to do? I am going to obey whatever you tell me, whatever you tell me to do. That's exactly what I'm going to do. Now that is the nature of faith itself. Faith demands obedience. Without obedience, there can be, there is, there never was faith. Or in other words, what did James say? Faith without works is dead. It's absolutely meaningless. But nevertheless, so here we are. En enough of my preaching. Let me get on to verse number three and beyond. How will Abraham respond? Has he learned to trust God? 
<laughs> it's a resounding yes. He goes from a dismal failure in chapter 21 to his ultimate expression. Verse number three. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him and his and and with and Isaac, his son. And he split wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. So let me just stop and just deal with that. Don't want to put a lot of time on it. I know I've been making this long as it is. But did Abraham hesitate? No, he didn't. Verse number three, Abraham rose early in the morning. What God told him to do, the same thing he did in the previous with, with Ishmael. He got up early in the morning, got his provisions ready, got his donkey ready, got his wood ready, his son and his servants. And he told them, let's go. That shows you that Abraham responded in obedience without hesitation whatsoever. So whatever is going on, whatever he understands or does not understand. He trusts God and therefore he is acting in pure obedience to God. He got up early. Now, let's continue. On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey and I and the lad will go over there and we will worship and return to you. Now, we have to. Guys, it is necessary to get into this part. All right. So now we find in verse number four that it was a three day journey. What's important about that point? Abraham had plenty of time to change his mind, turn around and go back home. So what did you see about Abraham? You, have you ever heard of that song by John P. Key? I got a made up mind. Abraham had a made up mind that he would be obedient to God regardless to the cost. And we all know what the cost would be here is the lot is the life of his son, Isaac. Remember his only son, the one that he loved so dearly, plenty of time to change his mind. He refused to change his mind and he persevered onward in his obedience to God. All right. So now he finally gets to the mountain. Verse number five, that's what that's going on. So he tells the two young men who escorted he, he and Isaac, right? What did he say? Stay here with the donkey. Now, here's the thing that we got to see. I and the lad will go over there. So he's going outside, no doubt of the view of the view of these men, no doubt outside of that view, because probably and quite naturally probably wouldn't want to stop him saying, Abraham, what are you doing? You're going to kill your son. But nevertheless, he is adamant to do what God would have him to do. I and the lad will go over there. But notice what he says again, slowing it down. I and the lad will go over there and notice, and we will worship. And the worship is doing what? Offering of the burnt offering, that sacrifice. And notice this, the verb is plural. We will worship and we will return to you. So what is he saying? Abraham is saying, not only will Isaac go with me in the worship, but what's going on with Isaac? Isaac is not going there simply to bow down to worship. Isaac is going to be sacrificed. But Abraham says that Isaac will return with him. So that tells us, that's what Hebrews 11 verses 17 through 19 
tells us how that by faith, Abraham offered up Isaac and also by faith, he believed in the promises of God. Okay, let's go back. What is the promise of God? Through Isaac, through this particular seed, Abraham's seed, he will have a multitude of seed. It would be a blessing to the Gentile nations. Once again, what? Isaac doesn't even have a child. So therefore, what is Abraham thinking in his mind? God has not fulfilled his promise to me. That is the promise that Isaac should have children and these children should have many, many children. That hasn't even happened yet. Now, if I kill Isaac, then the promise of God will be made of no effect. What has Abraham learned to believe about God at this time? This is the thing. Abraham believes that God is faithful to his promise. God will not and God cannot lie to him. And so therefore Abraham surmises to himself and he says, he says, I tell you what, I tell you what, if I kill him, God will resurrect him from the dead so that he can keep his promise to me. One thing that I have learned about the God that I serve is that he will not lie. He cannot lie. And if he promised a son to me, if he promised seed to me, if he promised many descendants to me, if he commands me to kill him, God must raise him from the dead so that he can keep his promise to me. He cannot lie. He must keep his promise. I believe this about my God. And this is what he is saying. Even though the, the men don't know that this is the message in Abraham's mind and heart. This is the theological bend that Abraham is moving to. That God will raise him from the dead. We are going back. What he left out was, I'm going to kill him. I'm going to sacrifice him to my God. But after I sacrifice him, God is going to raise him back from the dead. And me and Isaac will come back to you again. That's what Abraham is saying. And that's what Abraham believes. What kind of faith is that? Expect that's been never a demonstration. Nowhere in the scripture thus far that we have any demonstration of God raising a person from the dead. But nevertheless, even though Abraham had no idea who, what, why, how, he had no idea how God could do it. He still believed Number one, he knew God could do it. And number two, he knew that in order for God to keep his word, God would do it. So that's the whole point. That is the faith of Abraham. And I say, Lord, give me that kind of faith too. But anyway, let, let me go ahead and finish it. I don't want to run out of time. So what happened? Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering. He laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So the two of them walked on together. Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. And he said, that is Isaac, behold, the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked together. Now, let's talk about that. Now we bring into focus 
the person of Isaac. Now, what you have to understand is this. Isaac is typological. I, Isaac is speaking not just of himself as well. Yes, 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 yes. But remember, the whole point that I've been stressing about is how all of this personifies what God the Father would do with his own son, Jesus the Messiah. So Isaac here is a type of Jesus. He speaks of the person of Jesus. Okay, so we see Jesus in Isaac. Now, what do we begin to see? So as they're going on down the road, head into the place of the sacrifice. Isaac has done this. Who knows how many times seen his father do it. How many times he knows you got the wood. He knows you got every the knife and all of that. But Isaac says one thing is missing. He said, where's the sacrificial animal? There is no lamb to be sacrificed. And so he brings that to the attention of his father. And that's where we are in verse number seven. He says, I see the fire and I see the wood, but where's the animal? Where's the lamb? And notice that's also key to the lamb. The, the expectation that God would provide the lamb. But when we get on down the road, we'll see God will provide a ram. And why am I bringing that part up? Just in case I forget, sometimes I get excited and do. But why? I think that there's an issue that, that is spiritually involved why God provides later on the ram instead of a lamb. Because God would wait many thousands of years later to provide the true lamb of God, Jesus, the Messiah, who takes away the sin of the world. So what he gave Abraham was a substitute, a ram. But anyway, I'm ahead, slow it down, back it up. So what happened? Verse number eight, Abraham responds to his son, Isaac, saying that notice the faithful he believes that somehow or another, God will provide. God will provide for himself a lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And so they, he, he soothed his mind in the sense of saying, this is what God will do. And so they continued on their walk together to the place where Isaac himself would be sacrificed. All right, verse number nine. So they came to the place which God had told him. And Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on, on, the, on the altar and on top of the wood. Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, he said, here I am. Now let's stop there because I want to talk about some things about Isaac before I go any further. So verse number nine lets us see them coming to the finally to the place. It doesn't tell us exactly what that place was, but God had revealed to Abraham in some way or another, this is the place where I want you to perform the sacrifice. And so Abraham built the altar. He prepared the place for the, for the sacrifice of Isaac in the arranging of the wood. And he bound Isaac, his son, laying him on top of the altar on top of the wood. The, now, what I want you to see here, remember what I told you about Isaac. Isaac is no longer a small boy. Isaac is a young man at this particular time. So, and, and Abraham is an old man at this time. Okay, Isaac is young, Abraham is old. Point, Isaac's strong, Abraham is probably not as strong, but probably no doubt Isaac is stronger than Abraham. But what I want you to see is Isaac 
in the picture of Jesus. You have to see him being portrayed as Jesus. He did not resist his father. He trusted his father no matter what. And Isaac is well aware of what's going on. He knows his father is taking a rope, binding him up, placing him on the wood. Isaac never fought back, but he submitted himself to the will of his father. And that's the same idea that we get with Jesus. Remember, that's Jesus' whole mantra in life. What did he say? I did not come to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And what is the will of him who sent me? For God the Father so loved the world that he offered up, gave his only begotten son. The same thing that God is commanding Abraham to do, to offer up his only begotten son. But nevertheless, we see Isaac like Jesus the obedient son to the will of his father, even to the point of his own death. Okay. And he trusts the absolute trust that Isaac has in his father. Nevertheless, if you're going to kill me, father, then you kill me. I won't resist you. That is amazing. Absolutely amazing. But we're continuing on. So what happens? Abraham took out the knife with every intent to kill his son. And then we have the appearance of the angel of the Lord. And when we talk about the angel of the Lord, this is nothing more than once again, guys, the theophany. This is a manifestation of the presence of God. So the angel of the Lord is the Lord himself. Now, if you want to be specific, we have come to understand this simply as the second person of the divine Trinity, that is Jesus. All right, so we see that angel of the Lord in the Old Testament. It is pre-incarnate manifestation of Jesus in some way or another. But anyway, we don't wanna get into that discussion. But nevertheless, it is the angel of the Lord who calls out to Abraham, verse number 11, and let me go over it again. I don't remember if I read it or not. Angel of the Lord called to him from heaven saying, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, here am I, he said, do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. So now we see the response of the angel of the Lord as Abraham comes to the, to the striking point, to the point, the climax of his testing whatsoever. That is the actual slaying of of Isaac. The angel God calls from heaven and tells Abraham to stop. Abraham, Abraham. That is the emphatic by calling the name twice. Notice what he says in verse number 20. And this is the root. This is the nature. This is the principle of everything that James was talking about in his books about faith and works. Notice what he said. Do not stretch your hand against the lad. Why? And do, do nothing to him because now I know you fear God. So here's the thing. Do you think God is saying he didn't know in the beginning? What does God not know? God knows all things. But the point is this. Abraham, it was necessary for Abraham 
to evidence his faith by his works. And okay, I don't want to use theological uh, uh, language and mess you guys up. Abraham had to show God not. Okay, I tell you what I'm going to do. Let me slow it down even more. Do you remember in Genesis chapter 15, after, after this whole issue of Abraham returning back from the slaughter of the king and this whole thing with Melchizedek, remember that? And then all of a sudden God appears, the word of God comes to Abraham again. And God tells Abraham that he is his shield and his, re his reward shall be exceedingly great. All right. And Abraham begins to kind of pout a little bit and say, well, what shall you give me, Lord? I haven't gotten the child you promised me yet. And then God tells Abraham once again, he reaffirms that covenant. He said, I promise you, I'm going to give you that child. And notice what it said, 15 and 6. And Abraham believed God and God counted that faith. God counted his faith. Faith, his simple believing God as righteousness. Now what we're going to see in chapter 22, we have faith must always be followed by works. There can never be true faith in the absence of works. If you say you believe, you must always act like you believe. So therefore, God not only see God, always, he knows the heart and he knows the genuineness of faith. God was simply allowing Abraham to evidence his faith by his works. And that is the point that James brings about. James brings about this same issue, this same instance. He says, don't you see how Abraham himself proved he was justified, justified, not the justification of salvation, but the justification of his faith, the reality, the proving of the genuineness of his faith by what he did. And James brings this same point out in his own commentary concerning Abraham. But nevertheless, we're going back to the verse. So God was simply praising Abraham for the evidence of his faith, for his outworking of faith by his works. And he says, now I know that you fear God. And you can see the exaltation of, of Abraham's faith in this sense, the praising of it by God himself. And notice how God will begin to bless him and kind of shower that blessing of Abraham. But we'll talk about all of that as we move through the text. And he says, you've done this and you've proven your faith towards me in that you did not withhold your son, the greatest gift that you had in the world, your precious son, Isaac. You were willing to sacrifice him for me. Okay. Verse 13. Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked and behold, behind him, a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. Abraham called the name of that place. The Lord will provide as it is to this day in the Mount of the Lord. It will be provided. So let me talk about that. So he looked and there God provided a substitute. Notice he's looked and saw a ram. Remember what I told you guys earlier? I was a little premature about the ram when Abraham, 
Isaac and Abraham both were looking for a lamb for the sacrifice, but nevertheless, God chose the substitute here of a ram. That is, I believe that he himself would later provide the true lamb of God. So he gave Abraham a substitute, a substitute for Isaac and later on a substitute even for our sins, Jesus, the Messiah. Caught it. And so he just simply offered up the ram Abraham did instead of offering up his son. And he called the name of that place. Now, in English, it says the Lord will provide. But actually, he called the name of that place Yahweh Yeri. Yahweh Yeri. That is literally in Hebrew, the Lord will see. So we have here a little interpretation. The Lord will see, meaning the Lord sees the need. And because the Lord sees the need, he provides for the needs. Okay. So therefore it says the Lord in the mount of the Lord, it will be provided. It's also saying in the Hebrew, in the mount of the Lord, it shall be seen. All right. Same idea where God sees the need God provides for the need. The need of Abraham, what he needed was a substitute and God provided it. What we need is a substitute for our sin and God provided for that. It was seen. All right. 15. Now let's look at the reaffirmation of the promise of God because of what Abraham has done. And you can see the joy uh, It's almost like a joyous thing in the voice of God. God is very pleased with Abraham. And that's what we want for God to be with us. We want God to be pleased with us. Okay. But let's look at that reaffirmation of the promise. Verse 15. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself, I have sworn declares the Lord because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, Indeed, I will greatly bless you. Can't you see the language? And I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of heaven, as the sand which is on the seashore. And your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men and they arose and went together to Beersheba and Abraham lived at Beersheba. All right. So God is very pleased with Abraham. And we have once again, a reaffirmation of that covenant promise that God has been making all throughout chapter 12, chapter 15, 17 and, and 18, where God keeps affirming this covenant promise through the seed that he will give Abraham and the many descendants. So God just simply, he's just giving it again. However, now there was something and he says, and we can see that exalt a sense of exalting of God in Abraham's face. I'm saying E X U L T I N G exalting of God. God is praising Abraham. He's pleased with him. Okay. Because Abraham was willing to, to sacrifice his own son. And he adds another dimension to that blessing. Notice in verse number 18, he's, he says, uh, I'm sorry, verse number 17 at the end of it. 
your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. Now, that's another dimension of that promise blessing. This was addition. This has never been said said uh, in times past. So the I tell you what I'm going to do. Let me slow it down. I want to bring a couple of things to light here. Collective, collective and individual. We have to understand the promise of God in that sense. All right. Collectively, speaking of Abraham and the Jewish people, that is the nation of Israel, literally the Jews, there will be multiplicity of these people. And all of this God calls the seed of Abraham. And you can see the collective idea being brought about when we see being your seed being like the stars in the sky or the sand of the seashore, multiplicity, a great number of people that's collective. So this blessing to Abraham or the blessing that will come to Abraham, even his seed, that is the Jewish people. Okay. All right. So that's one collective, but at the same time, as we have looked through this text and it's, it's in all of that. Almost every time God makes the promise, he always says seed, Zerah, seed in the singular. Notice in your seed shall all the nations. So that is that singular idea or concept. So not only is God speaking with respect to the Jewish people as a whole, stars, sand, multitude, but also singular. And when he speaks of that singular seed, he is simply saying this, all of the blessings that God is promising to the people of Abraham and to those who will be blessed through Abraham will come through a singular source. And that singular source is a single seed. And that is the Messiah, Jesus. And this is whom God has been talking about ever since the fall of man in Genesis 3 and verse 15, when God talks about the seed of the woman, that is the Messiah, Jesus. So the point that I'm stressing, the promise that God continues to make, the blessing of Abraham, it has both a a, 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 a sense of complexity that his seed being the descendants, stars of the sky, sand, multiplicity of Jewish people, they inherit these blessings. But even they themselves, all the blessings of God to the descendants of Abraham and notice all the nations of the earth should be blessed. That part deals with the Gentiles. That's to us and to the rest of the world, all the blessings to the seed, to the descendants of Abraham, as well as to the Gentile nations will be transmitted through the singular seed. That is Jesus, the Messiah. He is the single sole source of all blessings of God. And Jesus is a descendant of Abraham. In your seed is this blessing. Okay. And so that's what's going on with that text there. And so after that uh, renunciation 
reaffirmation of the promise that God makes to Abraham, he and Isaac both, and almost in a sense of triumphant worship, return back to the men at the foot of the mountain and they go back home to Beersheba and remain there for some time. All right. Now, even though we are through with this particular point concerning Abraham, I guess I'll make a final point for you guys to always remember. There is no true faith apart from obedience. In the absence of obedience, it simply indicates you do not believe God. I cannot stress that enough. You cannot say you have faith and don't have works. This is the teaching of the book of James. All right. Now, as we wrap up chapter 22, there are a few more verses to look at. And the reason that these verses uh, are important is because they begin to help us with the transition as we move from the to the end of Abraham's life. Abraham is no no longer going to be the center of focus is now going to be about Isaac. Isaac, the son of promise. So now the scripture is now going to start begin to concentrate on Isaac. We're going to have a little interlude in chapter 23 dealing with the death of Sarah. But nevertheless, the focus is now going to begin to transition and shift toward Isaac. And since it's going to be shifting to Isaac, now we have this little tie-in in verses 20 through 24. That's the reason why. Because it's going to talk about Isaac's future wife, Rebecca. And that's the reason why we bring in this whole issue in the end of this chapter concerning the birth of Rebecca because it helps tie into Isaac's life. So let's just look at these verses. There's nothing to talk about in great detail. We just talk about the, the, the lies, the, the, the descendants of the brother of Abraham, Nahor. All right. 20. Now it came about after these things that it was told Abraham saying, behold, Milcah also has borne children to your brother Nahor. Remember, Milcah is the wife of Abraham's brother Nahor. Remember, Abraham had an elder brother that he left in the land of Ur of the Chaldeans. All right. And so this woman by the name of Milcah had children to him, eight sons that we will see about and one son in particular who is of note. 21, Uz, his firstborn, that name we probably has reference, we can see that in Job 1 and 1. Uz and Buzz, his brother, Kimuel, and the father of Aram, and Kesed, and Hazo, and Pildaj, and Jidlop, and Bethuel. Now it's that Bethuel that's the most important name in this context. So we're just basically talking about there were eight sons that Milcah gave to Nahor, the brother of Abraham. The noted son, when we put our attention to, is Bethuel. And that's why verse 23 highlights this idea. Bethuel became the father of Rebekah. These eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother, his concubine, whose name was Rumah, also bore Teba and Gaham and Tahash and Micah. So it, then it just simply said, verse 23, Bethuel is the one 
to concentrate on because what noted, he became the father of Rebecca. Remember, women are not really given a lot of notoriety naming so much in the Old Testament unless they're usually pay, playing a notable role. And we know that Rebecca will play a notable role as we will see in chapter 24 when Abraham sends his servant to find a wife for Isaac. And that wife that he will find is the daughter of Bethel, who will be Rebecca. And so now we see why this particular information was added to help us in that transition as we focus on Isaac. And we understand how that Abraham, when he got ready to get a wife for his son, he didn't get one from the Canaanites in the land, but he sent back to his brothers for a wife for his son. And this, and I don't want to get into all of that, but that mantra will play over and over again in the lives of the Jewish people. All right, guys, thanks for joining me on that one. Sorry we were a little long-winded on that one, but I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. i catch you on the next one. Have you subscribed yet? What are you waiting for? Subscribe.